0: Although millions of words are written each day on geopolitics, it's surprising how few of them deal with the underlying causes of what is going on. There's plenty about election campaigns and summits and UN resolutions, but far less on what actually determines how power is accumulated and exercised internationally. In her book Disorder, published by Oxford University Press, Helen Thompson gets beyond the ephemeral and analyses the role of fundamental drivers of events, uh, the energy markets and the international monetary system in particular. And it's one way in which her book is distinctive. Another is not really its depth, but its breadth. Uh, Given how much of academic output has a very narrow focus, this book is unusual in attempting a sweeping overview. Of what's happening in the world so the future of disorder it is striking that you deal with uh, energy and currencies in the financial system we're going to start with energy as you do Uh, you've studied it for many years and let's just start with the commonplace sort of observation that's often made the u.s fights wars for oil um how true is that and how often is that true and and uh, how much more can you tell us about what oil actually does to drive events?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that generally the United States has fought wars for um, oil. I would say that quite a number of the big wars that the United States has been involved in, not least obviously the the first the two World Wars, that oil has played a pretty important part in the outcome of those battles, those conflicts. I think where we can start to say that there's some relationship between the wars the United States fought and oil is in the, in the Middle East um, after 1990. If we take the first Gulf War, then George Bush Sr. was quite explicit that the United States was defending Western oil interests in pushing back Iraq out of um, Kuwait. The second Iraq war is obviously a lot trickier to unpack what the motives are were. The Bush administration and its European allies who joined the war effort in Iraq didn't want to say that it was a war about oil. It was a war about weapons of mass destruction and at least on the American side some rhetoric about promoting democracy in Iraq. Now there was a kind of simplistic version I think of the the Iraq war was really about oil uh, argument at the time which sort of presented George Bush as being, in some sense, in hoc to the oil companies, uh, not least because of some of the people, including his vice president, whom he'd appointed um, to his administration. But I think it's better to think of the second Iraq war as having an oil context, and that was that the existing policy in relation to Iraq, which was a sanctions regime on um, Saddam Hussein's regime, and then the oil for Food program via the United Nations was beginning to constrain the supply of oil at a time when Asian demand in general and Chinese demand in particular um, was beginning to rise and china 's case would be quite spectacular rise in oil consumption sort of around the middle of the of the um, 2000s so I think one context. Perhaps the overriding context for the Iraq Second Iraq War was the belief in Washington that sanctions needed to be removed from Iraq and a Western friendly regime that would allow the significant development of Iraq's oil industry to take place should be in power.
0: Your mentioning China does prompt a question I, uh, I wanted to ask you anyway, which is China obviously is just as you say has needed a lot of oil in, let's say, the last 20 years, and, and hasn't uh, fought for it. I mean, I don't know what's been going on in terms of how it's secured its access to oil. Can, can can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the issues here is is that China is, um, worryingly, I think, from its point of view, um, dependent in significant part on the United States uh, in order to provide China with energy security. And that's particularly true in relation to the American naval presence in the in the Persian Gulf. It's one of the things that led Donald Trump, when he was president, to complain as bitterly as he did, often on Twitter, about the American military presence in the Persian Gulf, because he basically said, "Why are we doing this? We're doing this with the Chinese and the Japanese, and to some extent the the Europeans." But I think, from Washington's perspective here, the alternative would be to let the Chinese take. Direct responsibility for China's energy security in the in the Middle East in the waters of the the Persian Gulf, and that would mean in time that the Chinese Navy replacing the United States Navy as the the dominant power there, and, and I don't think that that's an outcome that's wanted in in Washington. So I think that it's um, an awkward compromise or tension, shall we say, at the moment between the fact that China has an acute energy security vulnerability. Um, but nobody, neither China nor Washington, really want to move to a world in which China takes direct naval responsibility for its energy security. What it is trying to do, and I think that this was true before Xi Jinping came to power, is to try to reduce the amount of energy, oil and gas that comes into China um, by sea, and the, and to increase the amount that's coming in via pipelines across Eurasia, whether that be, as it does at the moment, oil and gas from from Russia or building pipelines that would take oil from the tip of the Persian Gulf up through Pakistan and into China in the Xinjiang province.
0: So, are you surprised they've allowed that vulnerability to exist? The Chinese. I mean, if, you know, reading your book is—it's—it's it's, it's a vulnerability the Europeans and the Americans since you know Second World War, let's say, yeah, have really worried about and and have acted very aggressively to uh, protect their supplies. But the Chinese, you know, why
1: have they taken the risk? China's point of view is is that I, I don't think that they've been complacent about it. Quite the contrary. I mean, that China was self-sufficient in oil production to around until around 1993. And after that point, I think all Chinese governments have had a sense that as they open themselves up to foreign oil dependency, a security vulnerability um, comes um, with that. But given that China was moving to the level of economic development that we saw from, in China from the late 1990s and into the 2000s, in a world in which the energy security of Western countries had was already come to dominate um, the way in which the geopolitics of the Middle East was um, playing out, China didn't actually have, I think, a lot of good options where this was where this is um, concerned. It, it's way beyond the point in which it could produce oil for itself. It needs to import it from somewhere. Partly, it wants to import it from quite a number of different places so that it's not too dependent on anywhere in particular. But in the same way in which the European countries have fundamentally got a choice between Russia and the Middle East for supply of oil and gas. I mean, obviously, there's there's, there's some caveats that need to be put to that judgment. But so does China, and China is in that sense managing something of the same problem, albeit in a different way. Let's
0: talk about that European Dependency on Russian oil and gas. So, you know, it's it's come up as a big theme of the coverage of the war in Ukraine. So, let's just start with this. How much of a factor has energy been in this conflict in Ukraine?
1: I mean, I don't think that energy is the cause of the conflict. I don't think that Putin, so far as it's possible at all, to really to understand his motives is sent the Russian army into Ukraine because uh, he has some ambition of seizing the energy resources that are in um, Ukraine, or he wants Ukraine um, because he wants control of the pipelines that run through Ukraine. So in that sense, I I don't think that energy is motive on the Russian side. I, I think where energy comes into the picture is that Putin made a judgment that the energy dependency of European countries on Russia meant that they wouldn't take massive action if he were to engage in the um, level of invasion that he has come to um, do. And that in that sense, the European energy dependency on Russia is part of the reason why the West as a whole, and including obviously there now the United States and NATO, was unable to deter a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Because in Putin's calculation, the level of dependency was such that would rule out any really significant counteraction.
0: So have you been surprised, has Putin been been surprised by the level of Western unity?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the argument about Western unity is actually overdone. Um, I think if you just looked at it in the terms of the European side of this, is what has happened is is that in the face of the long-standing division in the European Union between on the one side France and Germany and on the other the Eastern European countries led by Poland and the Baltics, that Poland and the Baltics worldview of Russia has won hands down and that the German and the French position has shattered. So in Europe, the unity is a function of The conflict, internal conflict being one by one side um, of the, the conflict. I think that what Putin may have underestimated was that when he did something that was so shattering to the worldview in Berlin, that there was going to be a massive reaction against that, in some sense, almost as punishment for the illusion being shattered. And I think that although it's incredibly difficult for Germany to turn away in the short and perhaps even the medium term from the energy relationship with um, Russia, it's not going back to where it was. I mean, I don't think it's at all possible that Nord Stream Two can now get can now be resurrected once it's the case that Germany has built two liquid natural gas ports, as uh, the German Chancellor has said last week that Germany now will, then there will be a competition between American gas producers and Russian gas producers to sell gas to Germany. And that is a pretty significant development, I think.
0: Right. So that would have been a miscalculation, probably, by Putin. I mean, who knows? But it it, it looks like Uh, a a miscalculation.
1: I think it does. I hesitate only because I think everything to do with trying to understand Putin's judgment is very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, and and just before we finish on energy as a, as a sort of discrete topic, there's just one question I I've never understood, and I thought you'd know the answer. Why why did France develop nuclear energy in the post-war period? You know, everyone was faced with the same problem of not having enough energy, and France went down the nuclear route route to to a greater extent than really anyone else. Uh, what why?
1: Uh, well, I think. It's the case. It's certainly true that one of the reactions to the Suez crisis in all the West European countries, um, Britain and most com- consequentially Britain, France and West Germany, was to look to nuclear power. Now, obviously, nuclear power is not a direct substitute for oil because of the fact that nuclear power produces electricity and there's lots of things that oil and does that electricity can't do and vice versa. So I think it's fair to say that there was a sense in which the nuclear power option as an alternative to oil was always going to depend upon an electrification project as well. I think if we make a comparison between France and Germany, or France and West Germany, I should say, where I think the, 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 the difference is clearest I think the British case is a little little trickier, perhaps, to explain. What happens in, in West Germany is that West Germany in the 1960s is very committed to nuclear power. It's just as taken aback by what's happened at Suez as the French are. But what happens in West Germany that's very different than France in the 1970s is, is that a really significant domestic anti-nuclear power movement develops in, Germ- in West Germany. And it's from that that the Green Party eventually Emerges, and the Green Party, as we know, is the most in Germany. is the most significant Green Party in any European countries and um, politics. It was part of the coalition government between ninety eight and two thousand and five with the Social Democrats, and now it's in this new um, government with the Social Democrats and the Free Democrats um, too. So, there just turned out to be much more domestic resistance at the grassroots level i mean to the point of really a quite significant civil disobedience movement emerged in in west germany around the nuclear power issue in the 1970s and that just didn't happen in in france um in the same way i mean really not at all
0: before we go on to the financial system i mean oil is energy is your yeah what you've studied for years i think but why did you choose these two themes as the basis of your explanation of geopolitics over the last 50 years?
1: I actually knew quite a lot more about monetary and financial stuff before I knew about energy, to be honest. Um, but leaving my sort of development of my sort of personal interests aside, I think that I started from the assumption here that, or the belief here, the 1970s is a really crucial juncture. Uh, And that two things happen in the 1970s is is that the old international monetary and financial system comes to an end and we see the beginnings of the world in which we now live on the financial side of vast flows of of international capital across state borders in internationalized financial markets and an internationalized banking system. And at the same time, the energy shocks of the, the 1970s took place, the two big oil price shocks and really... The, chain, the, the the fundamental shift in the geopolitical balance of power where energy was concerned away from the, the Western countries and towards the Middle Eastern um, oil producers and to some extent towards the, the Soviet Union. And I think that those two stories were uh, are quite connected to each other because I think a world in which the United States was on its way to becoming the world's largest oil importer was not a world in which the international monetary financial system that had been created in 1944, on the tacit assumption that the United States was going to continue to have a trade surplus and a significant, a large trade surplus, and that that trade surplus was supported by the fact that the United States was largely self-sufficient in oil, um, was going to continue. So once the United States was a big oil importer, then the international monetary and financial system that presupposed that the United States was the world's largest oil producer and domestically self-sufficient, was going to to fall away. And in a way, those, those internationalised financial markets that emerged in the 1970s were also necessary for Western countries to be able to deal with the oil price shocks, to be able to finance their trade um, deficits. So, I started from that conviction that only if we understood the trajectory of energy since the 1970s, and but I wanted to give that a longer history too, and the way that that interacted with the trajectory of the international monetary and financial system from the 1970s. Could we understand the world that we're now living in?
0: Right, and if I were to ask you to summarise, really, uh, why, what are the advantages that the US enjoyed from having this status of having the global reserve? Currency through this period you're discussing. So just to get to the basics, why was that so important?
1: Well, I think that we we would have to tell one story about this that would run from like the 1970s through to 2008, and then what's really happened since 2008, where I'd say that it's become more consequential that the United States has the world's um, premier international currency. I think the great advantage in the 1970s was that at a point when the United States was going to need to borrow significantly more money, including indirectly to finance its trade deficit that this large oil import bill was making necessary, and at a time when governments would want to run budget deficits, that the great advantage of the dollar's position was that the United States could borrow in its own Um, currency and that really everybody else had to put up with the fact that from time to time the american government federal and the federal reserve and all the federal reserve board might want to um, let the value of the dollar um, depreciate and it crucially meant that the united states was able to buy oil once it became an oil importing state in its own currency it reached an agreement with saudi arabia and then effectively with OPEC um, via the Saudis that oil would be the, the currency in which um oil sales were always um transacted. So that was a big plus for the United States. Everybody else was in a position where if the um the value of their currency against the dollar depreciated, then their oil importing bill um would go up. When I say everybody else, I mean oil importing countries like the West European. Um, countries. As this was going on, I think it was also the case that the euro-dollar markets that had really begun in the last part of the 1950s, developed through the 1960s, which was basically an offshore dollar market in London, was becoming more and more significant and that in time that what might be called um, internationalised dollar banking really took off and I think you can see a big increase in that from the late 1990s and into the into the 2000s. Now this raised a big question though as to well what happened if there was trouble in those internationalised dollar credit markets that banks relied on uh, and the answer came when the crash came in 2007 as it started in 2007 in the summer of 2007 that the Federal Reserve Board, the American Central Bank, would have to act as an international lender of last resort to those markets. And then in the post-crash world, as a consequence of that, it became really crucial as to whether a state central bank had access to a dollar swap through the Federal Reserve. Uh, Any country, or in the case of the Eurozone, a monetary union that had access was in a much stronger position than those that. Um, that those that didn't, and what we also see, I mean, this was true before two thousand and eight, but we can see, I think, some really clear instances after, particularly in relation to Iran and um, Russia, um, that the United States was willing to use sanctions, um, to including extratorial, extraterritorial um, sanctions, to essentially to prevent other countries corporations and banks having access to the American banking system and so the ability to to shut other countries out of using um, dollars through the American banking system turned out to be a pretty effective instrument of American financial power and we can see obviously that that is one of the weapons that is at work in the present sanctions directed against Russia.
0: Right, because it was used against Iran first, and and now Russia uh, are also facing the fact that everyone has to operate with US banks. And therefore, if the US close that down, lots of people can't afford to let that happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, the United States was willing to use these kinds of sanctions previously um, before 2008. But the more that the dollar has completely dominated international banking, the more consequential these kinds of sanctions are.
0: So you, so that's, you know, very rapid, uh, just a selection of a few points, really, of what you're saying about energy and what you're saying about the financial system. How do they relate to the third section of your book, which is about yeah, politics and democratic development mm-hmm. and, and what's going on in the European Union and so on?
1: What I started here with was the, the notion that democracies have to deal with external change and that although geopolitical change and economic change, international economic change, not the only external change that could go on, that these are perhaps the most important. And so what I thought was the case and um, when I started was that actually some of the problems that Western democracies has ha- had had in the 2010s that have produced such disruptive politics, whether that be you know, like Brexit or the election of Donald Trump or the effective collapse of the French um, political um, party system had to be understood in part, but only in part, as problems that were generated for these democracies by these external um, changes. Now, obviously in the relation to the, the European Union uh, and the European Union's Euro, the, the monetary union of the European um, Union, That also had to be sort of situated in the ways in which the European Union does its political business in some sense, in which it it creates a set of what I would say are de facto constitutional rules that are put in treaties. And it's very noticeable that in the period between the Maastricht summit in December of 1991 through to the constitutional treaty in the Lisbon treaty the the constitutional treaty um, falling in referendums in France and Netherlands in 2005 and then the Lisbon treaty being ratified in 2009 that there were a succession of treaties that the European Union um, devised Um, as I say one of them the the constitutional treaty um, fell and the democratic fallout of the ways in which those treaties were ratified, and particularly in a number of countries, including ultimately in in Britain, I think damaged um, the, the, the 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 democracies concerned. And so, what we can see in the two thousand and tens in a number of European Union countries, but I, I'm going to focus on, on 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 Britain because it obviously the end of the story is Britain leaving the um, European Union, is that the story of the difficulties of democratically legitimating these constitutional treaties and the story of the fallout of the Eurozone crisis interact with each other to produce some pretty destabilising dynamics.
0: Okay, so just, just to start that, you're, you, to, to sort of break this down, you're saying that the the Eurozone, the decision to go for the euro. Was probably the most important thing in determining the, the, the functioning of the European Union. You know, from from that time on, I guess that's obviously true. But it, it 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 changed everything, right? And it meant that the EU had to do things that it hadn't previously done.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is complicated. I mean, because of the fact that the, at the the same time in, in which the um, commitment to monetary union was being made um was the same time around although the the monetary union commitment actually came first uh, as the cold war was coming to an end and the prospect opened up of eastern european countries joining the european union and german reunification so in this sense is is that the eu over the course of the 90s and into the early 2000s, because the point of East European accession, the first East European accession to the EU is until 2004, I would say is is that it's changed in in three ways. It's changed by the creation of monetary union itself, but a monetary union that doesn't include all the European Union members. It's changed um, by the geopolitical change brought about by German reunification and the fact that the EU is going to move eastwards to include new Um, East European member states that had formerly been um, part of the the Soviet um, empire. And it's going to have to deal with both sets of changes in terms of accession of East European countries to the European Union and setting up monetary union um, by devising new treaties. Um, And in part, I think that the, the constitutional treaty came about from the idea that in this enlarged European Union, then all the treaties had to be brought together. And then that brought into question the way in which these treaties could be democratically legitimated in the national politics of the member states, because the legitimation wasn't going to take place at the European level. There wasn't going to be a European Union-wide referendum on whether to um, accept the, the constitutional treaty. Each member state got to decide how it was going to ratify that. Um, treaty um, for itself and so part of my story is the way in which the geopolitical changes that are taking place in the composition of the European Union the incomplete monetary union because it doesn't include all members and the problem of what to do about these treaties and how democratic they can be made all interact with each other in some fairly destabilizing ways at least for a number of European Union member states
0: right and and one of the striking things you're you're arguing is that the EU uh, through this process did undermine well, democratic development in even advanced democracies because it had to to get decisions through parliaments that didn't want to take those decisions.
1: yeah, I think also is is that there's a real problem is is when which I think really came to the fore in the in the British case, um is that you have these treaties. Um, They set up a whole set of rules for how decisions are going to um, be made. They act in a way like constitutional rules. They take certain things out of democratic politics. And if you just ratify that through a national parliament, like the British government did with the Lisbon um, Treaty, and then a year after that treaty has been ratified through Westminster where the Labour government that was in power when this ratification took place had a reasonable sized majority. If a year later, that government is booted out of power by the voters and a party, in this case, the Conservatives, that was opposed to ratification of the Lisbon um, Treaty, became the largest party in Britain after the 2010 election, entered a coalition agreement with the, the, the Liberal Democrats. They are then landed with so to speak, the rules of the treaty, despite the fact that they were opposed to it. So in situations where you have a referendum for for a treaty, uh, a European Union treaty, I think you can say, well, it's kind of been accepted by everybody that they are the new, if you like, constitutional rules of the game. But if that hasn't happened and you actually then revert to a party that was opposed to the treaty being ratified, I think that some democratic tensions come to the fore. And that's what happened in the United Kingdom because when David Cameron um, became Prime Minister he wanted to say look we couldn't stop the Re- Lisbon Treaty being ratified we didn't have an election in time in Britain for that to be the case but we now want to see if we can claim some powers back for Britain the ones that we weren't happy were so to speak in his language given away in the Lisbon Treaty but given that all the other countries are ratified and, and hadn't got the same incentive to go back and look at it again that wasn't going to that wasn't going to happen it was pie in the sky to think that the um, that powers could be unilaterally claimed back by britain and out of that cameron put himself on a path where in some sense i think trying to seek retrospective democratic legitimation for the lisbon treaty by holding an in out referendum just brought the whole crisis of the united kingdom's membership of the european union to a head
0: right so the, the British story has this very sort of striking conclusion, uh, but you also write about Italy uh, and and just how uh, and I think yeah, a lot of people even follow events quite closely don't maybe quite appreciate just the extent to which democracy was was bypassed in Italy to get these things through
1: yeah I mean one the, the thing that's really crucial in, in Italy is is that Italy's position in the in the eurozone and what became clear in the in the summer of 2011 was that uh, Italy if it was not able to reduce its the Italian government I mean by that if it was not able to reduce its borrowing um, costs was going to need a bailout of a size which would have been very difficult for the Eurozone authorities um, to agree and which would have been in terms of the conditions that would have been attached to it very difficult for many Italian voters to um, to stomach, and so effect, effectively, a, a set of demands were made by the European Central Bank to the Italian government that was then headed by Silvio um, Berlusconi, uh, in which would have meant that, in exchange for these reforms being passed by the Italian Parliament, that the European Central Bank would support Italy's debt um, in bond markets by purchasing Italy more of Italy's debt. Uh, And once it became clear that Berlusconi wasn't in any position to redeem the promises that he'd made to do what the European Central Bank wanted, um, then with some prompting from Angela Angela Merkel, uh, the Italian president ended Berlusconi's government and appointed a cabinet of technocrats, so none of them were actually elected um, politicians. And we now, as we know, in the position where, or Italy is in the position, I should say, where the former president of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, is now the Italian um, prime minister. So Italy's basic democratic problem is, is that it can hold democratic elections, it can do the kinds of things you're supposed to do if you're a democracy. So in the first instance, let elections determine who exercises power. But as soon as you run into that government runs into difficulty, as soon as it needs some kind of support from the Uh, serious support from the the european central bank then there becomes pressure to to take the elected politicians away from power and give responsibility to decide to those who are considered safe to do so so those who are essentially technocrats and that has meant heavy involvement of people who've been who, who people who who have been previously um central bankers and i i think that what we can see is is that it erodes the idea that that um, democratic politics still persists in in Italy, because even when the politicians are the ones who are, um, i.e. the elected politicians are the ones who get to form a government, like after the last Italian general election in in April of two thousand and eighteen. Still, in that case, the prime minister um, and the finance minister were not elected politicians. So it's a sense in which the only people who are deemed trustworthy to do the economic decision-making are those who haven't been elected.
0: Right. So is it, is it then a, a confusion or a paradox that
1: liberal opinion
0: in Western Europe, in, in Europe, in the European Union countries, um, believes the EU is defending liberal values, and yet You're pointing out that it's sometimes undermining uh, democratic practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to the tension, doesn't it, between uh, the two parts of liberal democracies. And I think there was a tendency in the 1990s to think that liberal democracy um, was just one good thing, if you see what um, I mean, rather than there was a tension between the liberal part of democracies which concentrates to a considerable extent on constitutional rights and the more majoritarian democratic impulse of um, democracies uh, in which what matters are elections and the fact that politicians or parties that win majorities um, can then govern relatively um, unconstrained. And I think that there's a lot, stronger sense of or it came to be anyway perhaps from the 90s perhaps before of democracies being liberal with much greater attachment to their liberal values certainly amongst certain kinds of voters and citizens than there was to their democratic values even though it was all packaged together as being we're pro-democracy we're we're pro-liberalism and I think that one of the things that's happening uh, happened in the in the european um, union both as a consequence of the dynamics of the eurozone particularly for italy and as a consequence of these issues around the treaties is to show how european union itself can actually strain the national democracies that are that in some sense com- that in some sense compose it so it's not only that we have weak democracy at the European level, but the dynamics of the European Union, including the dynamics of, of monetary union, actually hollow out to some extent, at least in a number of member states, um, democracy at the national level.
0: Right. So given the attachment to democracy in many European Union member states, do you think the these contradictions mean the EU will face you know, further Massive internal contradictions, more Brexit, more, well, the disintegration of the EU eventually.
1: Yeah, I don't think that the EU is at all on the path to um, general disintegration. I think that that Britain was in a very, or the United Kingdom, I should say, was in a very specific um, position, partly to do with its own constitutional history, but probably more importantly to do with the fact that it was a large economy that wasn't in the Eurozone. Um, And so... That was both destabilising of the United Kingdom's membership, particularly once one throws in that, despite not being in the Eurozone, that the United Kingdom had the Eurozone's financial centre in um, London. But it also meant um, that the United Kingdom had a lot easier time getting out of the European Union because it didn't have to deal with a problem of debt and debt being denominated in what would then become a, a foreign currency in a way in which, say, if Italy had to leave wanted to leave the, the European Union, it would have to leave the Euro, Eurozone and it would have a huge debt and currency problem from um, from day one. So I think that, that the European Union has lots of fault lines that um, run through it. Um, but I think that its basic mode of operation, which is to like muddle through those fault lines, is still basically in place. And what we see, though, is, is that times of crisis that the fault lines really, really come to the fore. They're always there, like ready to erupt. And what's striking about the one that's erupted um, over Ukraine in the last few um, weeks is that that geopolitical fault line between the way, to put it schematically, that Paris viewed Russia and the way in which Warsaw viewed Russia. Um, The fault line, uh, in one sense, has been removed because the view from Paris has had to become much, much more like um, the view from um, Warsaw. But I think as the European Union starts trying to move away from Russian um, energy dependency it, what will happen is is that one of the other geopolitical fault lines which is around Turkey and Turkey's relationship to the European Union will come to the fore not least um, because of the volume of gas that there is in the East Mediterranean and the uh, rather um, aggressive attitude that Erdogan, the the Turkish premier, has to Turkish interests in relation to that gas. And as that question comes to the fore, I think we'll start to see the expression again of pretty significant differences of opinion between Germany and France this time about how to deal with the Turkey question.
0: So uh, right at the beginning of your book, you say uh, the world's economic and political order is being recast. And you've, you've talked about energy financial systems eu the us a bit about china mentioning turkey just there as a, a factor at the end it, it, can you bring it all together for us almost like the sort of you know the, the the sleeve you know on on a book cover sleeve they have to have you know make make you reduce everything to about 300 words or something uh, w- what is your argument about how all those things come together to recast the world's economic and political order
1: well I I think that I don't think that there's a um, a single thing to be said that can sum up the if you like the the the, the stories of, of of disruption through the two thousands and tens two thousand and tens as I as I was um, telling that I think the point where all the stories come together is the energy transition um, and the attempt to move away quite rapidly um, from fossil fuel energy so the net zero by 2050 um, commitments that are there in most Western democracies and net 2060 um, in um, China's um, case because what we see here is is that the geopolitical fault lines are going to con- around fossil fuel energy are going to continue but they're going to, have in some sense mapped over the top of them, the geopolitical fault lines created by the green energy transition or the bid for a green energy transition, particularly China's advantageous position in that, in relation both to um, rare earth metals uh, and in relation um, to its present um, dominance of um, green infrastructure. So like solar panel um, production for um, instance, and at the same time is is we what we're going to see as these competing energy dynamics play themselves out is is that we're going to have issues around energy inflation. we can already see that at the moment in fact, I would say that we could see how that problem had come to the fore last autumn in that interim between uh, where we had the economic recovery from the pandemic had started and before we ran into. Um, Omicron. So we're going to see again, um, through the energy transition, how disruptive energy inflation can can be to um, economies. And at the same time, the energy transition, the conjunction of the energy transition with energy inflation is going to bring up really divisive distributional conflicts in in democratic um, politics. Who is going to consume energy at what price? If we're moving to a future in which electric vehicles are going to replace oil-based cars, is that still going to be a future in which most people own a car in Western countries, or are we returning to a world in which owning a car will be the privilege of a a rich um, minority? And if that's the case, how is any um, set of Western politicians going to deal with the the political fallout um, of um, that So I think that for me, it's the future and the energy future where all the different disruptions that I'm talking about are going to come together.
0: And, and presumably, you know, it, it's just you, 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 know, you can't really make any sensible comment about where all that goes because it's just so unpredictable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, all I would say is I think it's going to be pretty tough. And I think that it's going to involve much more of a politics of sacrifice than we've been used to in Western democracies
0: well it's been absolutely fascinating you're amazingly clear in a way you explain all these things so we're very grateful to you and
1: uh, oh, it's been a pleasure i hope your book sells loads of copies thank you very much i appreciate it
0: <laughs> thanks very much